podcasts that I've listened to in the past normally begin with a kind of formula. That formula goes something like, hi, my name is blah, blah, um, and welcome to, insert podcast name, the show where, and then they say something glib and catchy, like uh, the show where history is on trial, or where cake baking is given a shake-up, or, you know, where cake baking is on trial. So, um, in order to introduce this podcast, I suppose I should do something a little bit like that. So, hi, my name is Mr Gorman, and welcome to Repeat Until Funny, the show where cake baking is on trial. Um, But really, the actual concept of this podcast is, um, I, I think I can best explain it in relation to two ideas. The first is the concept that was outlined far more eloquently than I could, um, by the essayist George Santayana, um, who said that history has lessons to teach us, fundamentally, and those that refuse to learn those lessons are doomed to repeat them. Um, the same way that if we never learn that the, the oven is hot or crocodiles bite, then we'd constantly be burning our hands and getting eaten by crocodiles. If you don't learn from your past conduct, if you don't learn from your past errors, then how will you ever correct yourself? How will you ever become a better human being? And I'm going to try and see the extent to which that's present in society. Because after all, um, what we've seen throughout history is that humanity doesn't always learn its lesson. Um, You know, after all, how can we forget the hand burning of... 1673 or the great crocodile massacre of 1248 these things repeat we do not always learn our mistakes and that leads me on to the the second idea that informs this podcast the second idea is that um and this is outlined by Karl Marx Karl Marx argued that history repeats itself first in tragedy then in farce so the first time it's uh at first horrid and sad, but later it's almost comical in its resurgence. It's almost funny that we keep plunging ourselves over the same cliffs, walking into the same doors. Um, you know, and this links personally to a, a Gorman family phrase that we say quite a lot in our family, which is repeat until funny. The idea that if you told a joke that no one laughs at, that doesn't mean that joke's not funny, it just means it hasn't been said enough. You just have to keep repeating it until someone eventually, you know, breaks down and laughs or cries, as is more often the case. So with those two ideas in mind, you know, the idea that um, history has lessons to to teach us um, and if we fail to learn from them, we'll repeat them. And the second one that um, history repeats first in tragedy, then in farce. The purpose of this podcast is to look back at times where history has repeated and try and learn some sort of tentative lessons. So try and draw up some common themes, trails and threads that can inform future action. So, hi, my name is Mr Gorman, and welcome to Repeat Until Funny, the podcast that does all that stuff that I just said. Before we start looking at specific examples of pandemics, I think it's important to to define exactly what a pandemic is. 
a pandemic is a, an illness or a disease that spreads all around the world. It happens across different countries. Contrast this to an epidemic, which happens in one country. Um, a good tip that I read to remember the difference between those two is pandemic begins with a, a P. Passport also begins with a P. Both of them enable you to travel around the world, or both do travel around the world, I suppose. Um, and it's important to say that human life has been punctuated by pandemics, and these pandemics have mainly been uh, full stops in the sense that they've had a massive effect on human life. They've killed a huge number of people over the centuries. Um, in the modern era, so the era we live in, uh, late 20th century and the 21st century, pandemics have been almost uniquely rare due to both technological and scientific advances, as well as greater health and immunity of populations. We live in the healthiest society there's ever been, even though there's a huge rise in obesity and things like that. The, the medical care and the technology we have to look after ourselves has extended our lifespans way beyond what was expected from our ancestors. However, with the current situation, the sort of coronavirus, COVID-19 situation, um, it's vitally important that we look back at prior examples. We've seen how we've been almost taken entirely aback by this situation. It's a complete surprise to the world, and many people are struggling to deal with the ramifications. And there's been a lot of people saying, and I've heard this quite a lot, people say that it's unprecedented, the situation we're currently in, as in there's been no prior examples. And hopefully what we're going to see today is that while it is a unique situation in terms of the context that we're in, in terms of the world that we're in, it's not unprecedented in terms of the impact that it has on human life. And the three examples that I'm going to um, talk about in this podcast will hopefully show that. Before I go on to those three examples, I just want to say a quick disclaimer, and this may come as a surprise to you. I am not an expert in epidemiology or any sort of science or any sort of disease. So any statements I make uh, related to those things, please be prepared for them to be wrong, or at least so oversimplified as being uh, somewhat worthless. What I will try and focus on with that in mind, is the historical side of things. Um, on that point, it's important to say that I've selected three examples here. I've selected the Black Death, the Great Plague, and the flu pandemic of 1918. And I just want to take you through very quickly the rationale for that selection, because after all, history is a, a huge painting. I could have picked almost any corner of that painting. There's thousands of examples of um, pandemics around the world, some of which are perhaps more comparable with the current situation. Um, the reason and the rationale for those selections are threefold. The first is their uniqueness as events, in the sense that they uh, stand out in the public memory, in the sense that they're so uh, different from what's gone before and what's come after. The second, and in link to that is its um, familiarity, in the sense that these events are somewhat familiar to people. Lots of people have heard of the Black Death, lots of people have heard of the Great Plague, lots of people have heard of the 1918 flu. So hopefully they have a degree 
a familiarity to them. And finally, my final rationale for, for their selection is their significance for the Western world, their significance particularly for uh, English people and the impact that they had um, in those quarters. So hopefully that makes a bit of sense. I've told you I'm not a scientist, I'm not an expert in diseases, but I have given you my rationale for um, exactly what we're going to be looking at. So let's start at the beginning. Historical precedent number one, the Black Death. All the citizens did little else except to carry dead bodies to be buried. At every church they dug deep pits down to the water table, and thus those who were poor, who died during the night, were bundled up quickly and thrown into the pit. In the morning, when a large number of bodies were found in the pit, they took some earth and shoveled it down on top of them, and later others were placed on top of them, and then another layer of earth, just as one makes lasagna with layers of pasta and cheese. These are the words of the Florentine chronicler during the Black Death, describing this perversely evocative, almost lasagna of death, this situation where so many people are dying that there simply isn't enough room for them to be buried, that they must be buried one on top of each other. The Black Death is by far the most devastating pandemic the world has ever seen. Lots of you may know little bits of background about the Black Death, just to recap very quickly. Um, it was caused by a bacteria called Yersinia pestis, um, and it was a bubonic plague, given its name because of the buboes that would swell on the skin, these huge uh, sort of pustules, black pustules, which would swell to the size of the apples in many cases um, and were a marker of this terrible, deadly disease. The spread of it, um, most scientists argue, and let me just clarify, I am not a scientist or an uh, epidemiologist or any sort of expert in diseases. I am a historian and a humble historian at that. Um, but I do have access to Google. Um, these very same scientists on Google argue that it spread through the fleas, the fleas that were carried on rats. They held this bacteria, Yersinia pestis, and once they'd killed the rats, they would then go and look for a new host. And that very unfortunate new host was the human race. Um, again, we talked about the buboes. Um, it's very different to a sort of airborne contagious disease, one spread through kind of coughs and sneezes. These tend to be um, transmitted through droplets and they tend to thrive, things like the common cold and the flu, they tend to thrive in cold weather and hot weather often sort of wipes them out. Plague was very different. Plague actually thrived under hot conditions and as a consequence, many, many more people died than would be usual in a pandemic. Um, the, in the infection itself took about three to five days to incubate in people before they fall ill. It's then another three to five days before, at this time, 80% of the cases, um, the victims would die. So a huge mortality rate. Researchers generally agree that the Black Death swept away about 20 to 30% of Europe's population. 
a huge number of the world's population as a whole devastated as a result. Some cities, some towns, 50% of their entire population wiped away. So again, we throw around these numbers. We say, you know, this many people, 6 million people died here, 2 million people died here, and it doesn't sound like anything. But when we think about the human impact of that, 30% of people's friends and family gone, 30% of people's neighbours gone. This is a huge, devastating disease. Um, and many people at the time, many writers described it almost like a, a horrible nightmare as being almost beyond human comprehension and belief. Um, the Renaissance poet uh, Petrarch said, Oh, happy posterity, who will not experience such abysmal woe and look back upon our testimony as a fable. This idea that those in the future will um, look back and not really understand the, the sheer horror of it. Um, that was the kind of attitudes that affected the plague during the time of the Black Death and subsequent plagues as described by Petrarch. But as historians, we, we have to believe it. We can't pretend that these things didn't happen. And that's the point that we're going to try and learn the lesson by looking at the ways that people responded to this pandemic. The first thing, there were measures in place to stop the spread around the world. Um, one of the biggest spreaders was through trade links. Um, different countries trading with each other, goods and services, and people spreading the disease that way, via perhaps the fleas that they have on them or the rats that are on board. All these ways increase the spread. Um, the countries that escaped the Black Death, so didn't have many cases or no cases at all, places like Iceland and Finland, did so because they had little contact with the outside world. So even in the medieval era, the world was very interconnected. Other countries trading and spreading their ideas and goods and diseases with others. Countries, Some of the steps that countries took in order to stop this spread were quite similar to measures which we would have in place today. So Venice, for example, in Italy, which was a city-state at this point, it wasn't a country, um, Venice began the practice of isolating ships until it could be determined that no one on board was sick. Now, I want you to brace yourself here for a fun fact. There is a massive fun fact coming up. Um, so the holding periods of this um, isolating ships started at 30 days, that's their initial measure, um, but they determined that wasn't a lot enough and the wait lengthened to 40 days, or, as it said in Italian, quaranti giorni, I'm pretty sure that's an authentic uh, Italian accent, um, so quaranti giorni, quaranti, so how to think, so while, un uh, while unofficial isolation measures have been used in the past, the Venetian guidelines, so these guidelines for saying 40 days ships must be isolated, provides us with the word quarantine. Quarantine meaning 40, I think. Um, so fun fact, I hope you brace yourself. Um, the second response, so that was a measure to stop it spreading globally. The second response, medical. So at this time, the dominant theory um, was that diseases were spread by something called miasma. Miasma being the air, so bad smells, bad scents, bad air, 
in essence. And that was twinned with um, an idea of a, a doctor called Galen, an ancient doctor who had um, talked about the four humours and that all illnesses were due to an excess or um, not enough of one of those humours, be it things like blood or bile, um, and the way to cure you of those things was to reduce the amount of that substance you had through things like leeches when it came to blood, um, or to give you more of it. The problem with these two medical theories was that they actually hampered a coherent and effective response to the plague. While it was the best they could come up with at that time, the measures that were in place did little to actually help. So people were advised to do things like burn aromatic woods, so burn wood that smelt nice. Um, others would just do things like have flowers in their house to make it smell slightly more pleasant. Um, and they often carried around with them packets of herbs, of scents, which they could um, put to their nose should anyone come round who was particularly smelly. What's interesting about this is who has advised them to do this? Who has advised them to do, to follow this idea of miasma and to carry around nice, selling, uh, nice smelling things in order to counteract the bad smells that supposedly uh, bring the plague? Is it the government? Is it the church? Is it each other? Where do these ideas come from? If we look at the church, and this in many ways is one of the clearest um, responses we can we can see the response of the people in relation to the church because what most people do during this time of crisis is they turn to religion as they're seeing their neighbors die as they're seeing um huge issues arise because of the numbers of death as they're seeing these lasagnas of death build up in their their neighborhoods as bodies can't be buried um they look for the to the church for a cure and they pray that God will end this great disease, this great pestilence. And these religious reactions took two extreme forms. The first is the rise of the flagellants. The flagellants are a really interesting group. They believed that the Black Death was the punishment of God and took it upon themselves to try and sort of please God in order for him to take it away. What they did in order to uh, plead with God and to show that they were sorry for the sins of humanity that had brought upon them this plague is they marched barefoot through the cities and streets and towns of Europe, um, whipping themselves with sticks, with spiked tails. So they would whip their backs as hard as they could until they bled, until the skin peeled off as a demonstration of how sorry they were to God to try and prove that they were the they were so sorry that God should take this away. So that is the flagellants. The second response or the extreme religious reaction to the Black Death was the persecution of Jews. Now, any historian will know when they look back in history that the Jewish do not have a pleasant ride. They are persecuted throughout history and during the Black Death, it is no different. Many individuals in society came to believe that Jews were poisoning the wells and causing the Black Death. Now, this myth, because it was a total myth, there's no evidential basis for that statement. Um, this myth came from the fact that 
During this time, Jewish people tend to live apart from Christians in separate quarters. So separate parts of the city or separate towns in and of themselves were just for Jewish people. Um, so they were, in effect, already quarantined, which, as we know, comes from the Italian word. for um, So they were already quarantined when the Black Death hit the towns. So as a result, they had far higher sub survival rates. So people could go, well, if they're not getting ill, the only logical conclusion is they must be poisoning our wells, which um, makes sense in a sort of roundabout, desperate way. Um, so with that in mind, with that response, we've got to ask the question. That's, and to quote um, a lecturer I had at university, um, that was the, the what. What about the so what? What does this all mean? And for me, looking at this, and again, we're only going to draw really tentative, vague conclusions because history is not obvious. History is complicated. But we've got to say a few things. The first is that it's important to recognise that the Black Death came at a time where death was far more common and normalised than it is now. So death in these days, in the 14th century, was far more common far more regular. People didn't live to the ages that we do now, to 70s, 80s, 90s and onwards. You were lucky if you reached 40. Many children died before they could even walk because death rates were so much higher because there was no real medicine as we know it now um, and the conditions were so much worse. However, that doesn't make it any less tragic. Um, there's loads of really emotional accounts of people burying not just one of their child, but all of their children, six children in certain circumstances, all died because of this terrible uh, disease, this terrible plague. In that sense, we can also take what the historian Simon Sharma said, that the Black Death is a great leveller, in the sense that it strikes people whether they're rich or whether they're poor. Um, and there's a painting uh, from just after the Black Death had struck England, um, and where in some places 50% of city's population had died. And there's this picture, this painting called The Free Living and the Free Dead. On the left side are these sort of free uh, noble figures. They're quite rich. They're sort of walking confidently and they're pretty happy. They've got money, they've got land, they've got whatever they need. Um, and on the right hand side of the painting are these free skeletons, these free rotting skeletons. And these three nobles have come in contact with the skeletons and the skeletons respond by saying, know that I was head of my line, princes, kings and nobles, royals and rich, rejoicing in wealth. But now I am so hideous and bare that even the worms disdain me. This idea that it doesn't matter who you are, if you're rich, if you're poor, whatever religion, you can be struck by the black death. So it's a really massive period of time in history. It's a period of time that changes the way people look, not just at uh, life, but at death and the way they're going to live in the future. So that is the Black Death. Historical precedent two, the Great Plague. Our next uh, event of perhaps history repeating itself to a certain extent is the Great Plague of 1665, a return 
of this strain of forgotten what it's called. So this is why you need a piece of paper in front of you. Uh, Yersinia pestis. A return of Yersinia pestis. Um, to give you the background to the Great Plague, I'm going to do it in scenes. So I'm going to go sort of scene one, scene two. And what you could do, if you want, you could imagine it as a sort of Hollywood blockbuster. Um, scene one, winter, 1664. A comet flies across the sky. Like the comet that was seen just before the Black Death had struck in 1348, many people see it as a sign of great evil on the horizon. Slash the sky. Scene two, London, 1665. Reports of the plague are slowly dripping into British towns. The poorer parts of London um, have seen overcrowding make impossible to maintain good hygiene. There is no sanitation and open drains flow along the centre of the winding streets. The, cobble, the cobbles are slippery with animal dung, rubbish and the slops thrown out of houses. Muddy and buzzing with flies in summer and awash with sewage in winter. Scene three, London, early 1665. The first cases of suspicious deaths are reported in the docks of London. Many believe the plague has been brought over from the Netherlands by Dutch ships. Scene four, London, early 1665. After these early reports, hundreds of merchants and businessmen flee the city. Noblemen and their families retreat to their country residences. King Charles II takes his family away to Salisbury and then Oxford. Scene 5, London, mid-1665. Those who cannot leave die in their thousands. The dead are carted to mass graves. Officials are worried that this disturbing sight will cause alarm, so they decree that burials can only take place in the dark. And scene 6, London, July, 1665. It's the peak of the plague. In the last week of July, the London Bill of Mortality shows 3,014 deaths in London. 2,020 have died from the plague. There are not enough living to bury the dead. So that sets up the sort of situation that England was in during this time of the, the Great Plague of 1665. Um, in June, so June of 1665... 6,137 people died. In July, 17,036 people died. Next month, August, the highest across the, the whole of England. Uh, July was the highest in London, August in England. 31,159 people died. And in all, 15% of the English population died during that summer. And people who had suffered from it had a 30% chance of dying within two weeks. If we had to draw some comparisons already between this and the Black Death, we see that while the Great Plague is devastating, the levels of death are not as bad as with the Black Death. 15% um, in the Great Plague compared to around 30% dying of the Black Death. 30% uh, chance of dying with the Great Plague compared to an 80% fatality rate with the Black Death. And there's many reasons for that, but we're going to consider some of the responses that could um, could shine a light on why exactly that is. Um, Professor Vanessa Harding, um, who is a historian, 
um, argues that there were clear and coherent guidelines, uh, particularly in London, um, and a rational plan for dealing with the plague. And this came in the form of what were called plague orders. So they were almost like a set of guidelines and laws that people would have to follow in order to prevent the spread of the plague. So if you go online, you can see all of these. They're all available. If we just pick out a few. So order number seven is that um, no unwholesome meat, stinking fish, flesh, musty corn or any other unwholesome food should be exposed to sale in any shops and markets. Rule eight is that no swine, so no pigs, no dogs, cats or tame pigeons to be permitted to pass up and down in streets or from house to house. Um, let's go with number 11. So number 11 is that if any house be infected, the sick person or persons uh, should be removed to the pest house, sheds or huts for the preservation of the rest of the family. And that such house, though none be dead therein, be shut up for 40 days. 40 days, I wonder why that is. Um, and have a red cross and Lord have mercy upon us in capital letters affixed on the door. So if someone in your household was suffering from it, you would have to kick them out into the shed so they're away from you. There would be a big red cross marked on your door so people know that you're suffering from plague and give you a pretty wide berth and avoid you like the plague. Um, and this, by this, the idea was that um, people were able to separate themselves from each other and to slow down the spread of the plague. Um, so these do seem to be a coherent set of guidelines, quite similar to the guidelines that are going around at the moment uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. However, these requests were not always met. There were some uh, people during this time who perhaps didn't feel like they should or had to follow the guidelines. A little bit like how um, some people today, you know, in America, there's a video of these people on spring break and the people on spring break, they, they asked this guy, this this dude, who um, he's sort of got his hat on backwards, he's wearing a vest, um, and he says, yeah, I get it, there's a coronavirus, but I've got to have my spring break. And then everyone sort of whoops and cheers, and they go and drink some more beer. Um, and the same, minus the spring break kind of stuff, was true during the Great Plague. Um, Samuel Pepys, who was a man, oh, quite a rich man during this time, wrote a very famous diary. And in that diary, he um, made an account of some of the people that broke the rules. And he wrote um, in 1665, Lord, to consider the madness of people of the town who will, because they are forbidden, come to crowds along with the dead corpses to see them buried. He's almost suggesting that because they are forbidden, that is why they want to do it. And he's sort of calling them out for it. He's saying, um, you know, God, Lord, to consider the madness, how mad they must be. What Pepys fails to recognise, and through reading his diary we see this, one of the regulations was that um, there was a 9pm curfew. So after nine o'clock at night, no one should come out onto the streets. Yet in Pepys' diary... There are multiple accounts of peeps coming out onto the streets after nine o'clock, going to visit people, doing business. So peeps himself 
didn't keep to the regulations. So these regulations are not always met. So alongside this strategic and coherent approach, which clearly did have an impact in reducing the spread, you know, compared to what had gone previously, this was a relative success, even though it was a huge level of deaths. There were some alternative and less effective approaches. Um, these were responses not necessarily motivated by science. Um, so Simon Shah, who I mentioned previously, who said that um, the Black Death was a great leveller, um, argues that not so much is the case with the plague. He says, and to quote, the instinctive response of the king, as well as his subjects, was to invoke not the illuminations of science and the arguments of reason, but divine intervention through penance, fasting and prayer. So superstitions and religion still dominated treatment. So just like the Black Death, 300 years before, um, most treatments for the Great Plague were based on magic, religion, superstition, including things like wearing lucky charms, special remedies like um, dried toad, bloodletting, which was releasing blood from your body, again linking back to Galen's idea of the humours, smelling herbs and flowers, um, you see that very famous um, image of the plague doctor during this time with almost a big beak um, on their face. The idea behind that beak was at the end of the beak, you would put sweet smelling herbs and spices to ward away the illness. And that beak, again, brace yourself for another fun fact, uh, that beak is why modern doctors who aren't considered to be much good, doctors who in the modern day again, don't follow the science, are known as quacks. Because back in those days, that was the kind of uh, image you had. You looked a little bit like a bird or a duck. And the final treatment, talking about birds, um, strapping a live chicken to the swellings in the hope that the disease would be transferred from the victim to the chicken. And I think Donald Trump is going to um, suggest that as one of the possible treatments in a later briefing. Bit of politics there. Um, again, that's the what, so what. Looking at the comparisons, thinking about what we can learn. Um, the approach with the, the Great Plague is more centralised. It's more centralised than it was during the Black Death, um, which is illustrated through the issuing and application of specific advice. Um, however, there is some lying about the extent, because it's been centralised and because the government has taken some sort of um, responsibility for protecting people, um, there are cases where people lie about how many people have actually died. So again, from the diary of Samuel Pepys, um, he said, I met with Hadley, who was an administrator in his area, who, upon my asking how the plague goes, he told me it increases much, and much in our parish, our area, for, says he, there died nine this week, though I have returned but six, which is very ill practice and makes me think it so in other places, and therefore the plague much greater than people take it to be. So people are lying about it. People are pretending not as many people are dying as actually are because they don't want people to panic. It's also not really a leveller in the same way that the Black Death was. Um, those who could... So people like doctors, lawyers, merchants, the rich fled 
big cities like London. They went into the country to try and protect themselves. They had extra houses which they could return to and live. Um, Charles II, the king at the time, um, left in July for Hampton Court and then he went to Oxford. Um, Parliament is postponed so all the politicians don't have to sit um, because the plague was considered to be so dreadful. And what happens is that the poorest people are the ones that bear the brunt. The poorest people are the ones that get it in the largest extent and the ones that die. Um, so people like the Lord Mayor and Aldermen, which are like town councillors, remain in the cities and the towns um, to enforce the king's orders while the king is actually gone. And the poorest people obviously remain in London with the rats and with the disease and with the sewage. Um, and with those people who had already got the plague. So in many ways, it is something that overwhelmingly affects the poor rather than the rich. The rich have the potential to escape, the poor do not. And when it finally uh, dissipates and the, the threat of the, the Great Plague goes away, um, it's a very different society. It's a society where a huge underbelly of poverty has disappeared, um, soon to be replaced, of course, by a new underbelly of poverty. So that is the Great Plague. And hopefully you're seeing a few threads and trends and perhaps even comparisons with the modern day. But we're going to come to conclusions on those um, after our third uh, pandemic, which is the 1918 flu pandemic, the Spanish flu, as it is sometimes known. Historical precedent number three, what he just said. Looking at the date, first of all, 1918, it's clearly an important date. It's the end of one of the worst conflicts in human history. It's the end of the war to end all wars. Um, I bet whoever said that feels pretty stupid. Um, and during that war, during World War One, um, estimates range between three to 13 million deaths. A terrible global conflict that ended in tragedy for millions and millions of people. The Spanish flu, which broke out during the last few months and after World War I, is estimated to have killed between 50 and 100 million people. So multiple times more than World War I itself. More died in a single year of the Spanish flu than were killed in the four years of the Black Death. And that's obviously due to population growth, but it also shows how widely um, Spanish flu and the 1918 flu pandemic spread. It was highly contagious, estimated 500 million people infected worldwide, which was a third of the population at that point. And as we've said, 50 to 100 million people dying, which is about a 10 to 20 percent death rate, um, 100 times more deadly than seasonal flu. And another eccentricity of the Spanish flu was that unlike normal flu, normal seasonal flu that happens in the winter, um, the disease was picking off the young, the fit, the healthy, as well as old people. It wasn't uh, focused on people with underlying health conditions or very old. It was actually attacking most of the people that were fit and healthy, particularly those who had been in the trenches during World War One, the young, fit soldiers 
um, were dying just at the same rate as the incredibly old and the frail. And in the US, more soldiers died of the flu than actually died in battle. Looking quickly at the causes, um, the origins of the flu are still unknown to this day. There's multiple theories, there's multiple ideas. Um, it could have originated in France, Britain, China, but the most likely, they reckon, is the United States. Um, the first known case of the flu originated in America at a place called Camp Funston in Kansas on the 11th of March, 1918. And it's believed that it spread to other military camps in the US before the soldiers went overseas to fight in Europe. Um, in March 1918, 84,000 US troops headed to Europe, followed by another 118,000 in April. You can almost see them as a delivery of ticking time bombs of flu that they can just pass on to all these other people in Europe. And again, this is exacerbated, this is made worse by the poor conditions on the European fronts, on the European fronts, the, the trenches, all those images you've seen of trench foot and dampness and rats and all these horrible conditions. And as a result, the disease spread incredibly quickly, particularly within American troops. 40% um, of the US Navy, 36% of the army became infected. And they infected soldiers from other nations. Um, and even when the war finishes, of course, these soldiers go home. They might be slightly ill or they might be just carrying the disease. And they spread it quickly through places like Europe and Asia. So it's a huge spread. And we see with things like the conditions of the trenches, it's almost like a return to the conditions of the Black Death. Unsanitary, unclean, wet, dank conditions. So how do governments respond? And thinking about time periods here, because we've looked at two previous responses. The first was, you know, 14th century, 1348 to 1350, a very early uh, form of government, not much medical science behind it. As a result, you could expect that not to be as great. With the Great Plague, 1665, we saw a slight improvement. We saw government taking more of a responsibility and we saw some more clear and coherent guidelines but still with a, an undercurrent of superstition and an undercurrent of alternative and less effective uh, practices. So what is going to be the case in 1918? Governments do respond. Governments do take a bigger role than they ever had done before. So in the USA, the American Public Health Association decided to limit large gatherings and close saloons, cinemas and banned public funerals. They encouraged places like factories and stores to have staggered opening hours to reduce crowding. And in San Francisco, citizens were given $5 fines if they were caught not wearing a protective mask. A common belief by, held by many governments was that fresh air was good for you. Um, and people were encouraged to walk to work wherever possible. Cars, which were a relatively recent thing anyway, were frowned upon and thought to be dirty and helped to spread the disease. Switzerland were a place that took an even more um, draconian, a more strict approach to um, dealing with the uh, flu epidemic. They closed theatres, concerts, cinemas immediately. Um, the result of that was widespread panic in that country, but also an effective curtailing of the spread. 
but the people weren't particularly uh, calmed by it. In the UK, by contrast, the regulations were much, much milder. They really didn't take many measures. One of the very few measures was they limited theatre performances to three hours long. So you could still go to the theatre, you could still do anything else, but it could only be three hours long. I mean, if you're going to a, a play that's over three hours long, I mean, I think I might institute a rule, three hours long, flu or no flu, because that would be insane. Um, the reason the UK was so sort of lackadaisical and relaxed about this is that they knew it was a threat, but they were afraid that if they imposed restrictions, it would affect morale. It would affect this sort of great glory. We've just fought a war. We've been in horrible, almost lockdown for four years anyway. Rationing and things like this, which are just restricting uh, the freedoms of individuals, the freedoms of people. And we've just come out of this horrible war and now we have to fight something else that wasn't going to wash, according to the British government. And the press supported this, so newspapers supported this. The Times suggested that the illness was probably a result of the general weakness of nerve power known as war weariness. So they said it was probably because people are so tired of the war. Um, the Derby and Chesterfield reporter on the 12th of July declared that it was not really a matter for alarm. And the Manchester Garden, Guardian scorned, they made fun of protective measures. They said women are not going to wear ugly masks. So in Britain, this really didn't take hold. There was no real response. And in fact, Armistice Day on the 11th of November, which was called to mark the end of the war, a celebration, caused obviously thousands of people to gather, thousands of people to come together and celebrate, which set off a second, even more devastating wave of infection. And as people gathered to celebrate the end of the war, this virus that would turn out to kill way more than the war ever did um, swept through them. Parties and parades turned to disaster, in effect. So that's one response. The governments respond, but they respond unevenly. And in some countries, they're stricter than in others. Um, there is also an undercurrent of xenophobia, of hatred for foreigners, particularly with the Spanish being blamed. So Spain is one of the countries hardest hit by the flu, and it even affects the Spanish king, Alfonso XIII. I mean, they must they had a lot of Alfonsos, clearly, and he became gravely ill. You know, it was touch and go whether it would be um, Alfonso XIII for very much longer. But, and... It's interesting because the disease doesn't actually start in Spain. We've already said it's more likely that it started in America than anywhere else. But it's called the Spanish flu. To this day, people refer to it as the Spanish flu. The reason for that is because the first media coverage about the pandemic came from the country. The first media coverage of the flu came from Spain. So people associated it with that country. Everywhere else, because it was World War One, was sort of in... A propaganda mode where um, they were all trying to carefully manage what they said to the public. They don't want to say there's a massive flu going on here because everyone will get devastated. They want to say um, we're doing brilliantly in the war. Keep your hopes up. Stay positive and all of this stuff. But because Spain are a neutral country in World War One um, and they don't have these media blackouts, they report on it honestly 
and as a result they're sort of tarred with the brush of being the cause um and in britain media coverage attacks the spanish um and people become very hateful towards the spanish they suggest that the flu was caused by microbes traveling in spanish dust over the english channel there's this idea that the spanish are totally to blame for this awful terrible disease which is clearly not the case when we look at the evidence so that's the spanish flu um doesn't kill in the same percentages as in like a proportion of the population as the black death and the great plague but i think it's a good um source of comparison because we can see how the government response has developed and this brings us to our sort of concluding thoughts yeah concluding thoughts um i'm not quite sure what the function of these little interjections are but here are the concluding thoughts anyway the lessons that we have learnt from history the first thing to stress is that history is complicated and it can't be viewed as a simple repository for solutions. Like, if we've got a problem, we can't just go, well, this happened in exactly the same way in 1682, so we can look at that and find out what we need to do. That's just quite simply not the case. Simple solutions to complex problems are desirable, but they're almost never effective. Um, we can't simply go back in history and see what was right, what was wrong. What we need to do is identify threads and themes that run through history. Um, Mark Twain, the author, said, maybe it's not right to say history repeats, but it does rhyme. It comes back in a sim similar way. And through identifying these threads and themes, um, we can make some very tentative conclusions based upon them. So my tentative conclusion is this, that the biggest factor in controlling a pandemic appears to be scientific, scientific and medical advances. So development in technology, development in understandings of how viruses spread and ways that we can respond to them effectively. However, a key component of effective response to a pandemic is the attitude and approach of the wider population. Now, having looked through these examples, the Black Death, the Great Plague, um, the Spanish Flu, um, Unfortunately, we've seen that during periods of time where death is rife, rife, worry is prevalent and the soothing regularity of routines is shaken, people and governments um, historically react irrationally. So we've seen in the Black Death the blaming of the Jews when they clearly had nothing to do with it, the flagellation, whipping yourself on the back when it wasn't something brought on by God. We've got Things like the madness of the crowds during the Great Plague, as outlined by um, Samuel Pepys. People breaking the laws just because they simply want to, because they're so um, cynical or sceptical of what's actually happening. And then, of course, the blaming the Spanish for the Spanish flu. And again, this speaks to what I've just said about not wanting to seek a simple solution to complex problems. The simple solution is always the, the conspiracy theory, the bigotry, the xenophobia. Um, and these things are exacerbated and made worse by pandemics. A simple solution to a complex problem causes more issues than it solves. Um, the importance then is for, it seems, a coherent and quick response, underpinned or, or not undermined rather by division and calls, calls the more simple solution. Um, 
things like religion and mysticism, which were favoured during the plagues. Um, the question remains is, how important is the state of the nation? How important are things like morale and the positivity of people? And should that be at the expense of the deaths of others? Is quality of life more important than the eradication of death? And at this point, I'm going to refuse to make any wider statements about coronavirus in the modern day, because I think there's there's areas here that you can make your own conclusions on. Maybe a very tentative one would be this idea of simple solutions to complex problems, the prevalence of conspiracy theories, the idea of um, 5G being one of the main causes of the spread of coronavirus, which has absolutely zero scientific backing. But people like to latch onto those things because it's easy and it's quick. And, you know, rather than having to be in lockdown or suffer through difficult decisions or um, trust governments and do certain things that change our life, if we just knock down the 5G towers, that's problem solved. It gives us someone to hate the same way that the English had the Spanish to hate during the Spanish flu, the same way that people during the Black Death blamed on the Jews. All of these things are easy solutions to a complicated problem. And hopefully what, we've, what you've seen in this episode and what you're going to see in future episodes is that that's simply not the case. And we need to learn from the complexity of history rather than simply uh, continue to make this, the same mistake of applying simple solutions to complex problems. So to finish off, I thought I'd do a, a quick quiz to... Um... Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, quick quiz section. Sorry, almost forgot. To see if you were listening, to see if you've learned anything, or if indeed you wanted to learn anything. You might not have wanted to learn anything, and that's fine. Um, five questions, and I will give you the answers to these five questions in the next episode. So question one. What was a flagellant? What was a flagellant? Question two. Which religious group did many blame for the Black Death? Three. Where does the word quarantine come from? Fun fact. Um, four. How did the rich in Britain respond to the Great Plague? And five. Where did the Spanish flu originate from? There's a few answers. I will accept almost all of them. That brings us, thankfully, to the end of this podcast, Repeat Until Funny. Um, we had a lot of repeating, perhaps not much funny. funny. Um, the next episode is going to be on populist presidents. So the idea, um, not mentioning any names, but a certain orange wig-wearing uh, individual who recommends rubbing chicken on your face to cure the plague. Um, the idea that this has never happened before, we've never had a leader like this before, and I'm going to question whether that's true, looking back at figures like uh, Ronald Reagan, who was, of course, an actor before he became president, and thinking about what lessons we can learn from looking back at uh, history and of popular presidents. So thanks for listening. This has been uh, Repeat Until Funny, where cake baking is on trial. Uh, bye. Bye.